Dr. George Olcott, thank you very much indeed for talking to Judge Business School podcast series today. Um, your new book, the first question I have to ask you is, what's it called and what does happen to Japanese companies when they get taken over by Western ones? The uh, title of the book uh, is Conflict and Change, Foreign Ownership and the Japanese Firm, uh, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. It's not easy uh, to uh, say in one sentence what happens to uh, Japanese companies that are taken over by Western ones. In the book, I examine uh, five companies, Japanese companies, which during the period from around 1998 to 2003 uh, were taken over by Western firms. Uh, I think what I try to show is that um, the outcomes vary. The outcomes vary uh, enormously depending on certain factors, such as the industry they were in, such as the uh, financial position of the company uh, prior to the takeover, uh, and the objectives uh, of the acquiring firm in how the uh, Japanese firm fits into their global uh, operation and their objectives in integrating the Japanese firm into that organization. So the dull answer, I'm afraid, is that it very much depends, and there were multiple outcomes in, uh, in the cases. The cases that I looked at were Nissan, which was taken over by Renault, uh, Chugai Pharmaceutical, which was taken over by Roche of Switzerland. Uh, also, I looked at Shinsei Bank, which used to be called the Long-Term Credit Bank of Japan, which was taken over by a private equity firm called uh, Ripplewood, and two unnamed uh, companies um, whose uh, owners did not permit me to reveal their names. So it's, it's quite a study. Why did you become interested in these business practices in the first place? Because we've heard a lot about Japanese acquisitions and mergers of Western firms. But, but why did you in particular decide to, to, to look at um, it the other way around, if you like? This uh, interest started um, when I was working at UBS uh, in Tokyo in the late 90s. I had worked uh, in Japan for uh, many, many years. I speak the language reasonably well. Um, and I was asked by UBS to uh, manage a firm which we had taken over, which was a subsidiary of a Japanese bank. Having been in Japan for so long, I thought that I had understood Japanese organizations and Japanese customs um, very well. But on entering this company, which was a subsidiary of a Japanese company, I realized uh, very soon how little, in fact, I knew about Japan uh, and how different the uh, Japanese employees who worked for a purely Japanese company were from uh, Japanese employees who work for foreign firms. Uh, and I went into the company with uh, all of my uh, Western prejudices um, and set about trying to make changes to this Japanese organization, making particularly the HR practices uh, resemble those much more of a foreign firm, um, and made a number of uh, mistakes uh, all along the way. And at the same time, uh, uh, during the late 90s, uh, there were a number of very large-scale transactions, such as the, the Nissan-Renault one, which I've just referred to, which is uh, focused on in the book, um, which began to suggest that Japanese capitalism was taking on a new face. Um, hitherto, there had been very few Japanese firms, uh, especially large Japanese firms, which had been the subject of a foreign takeover. 
But during the late 90s and early 2000s, with the weakness of the Japanese economy, with Japanese share prices having come down, there was a spate of these, uh, of large, of these large uh, acquisitions. And it seemed to me that this was potentially a turning point um, in, in, in the way uh, Japanese approached the market for corporate control and that there would be more of these kinds of transactions going forward. Yeah. So, 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 you know, some of those cultural values, would you call it a, a culture clash? Or, or, you know, what are the um, challenges facing the Japanese management teams? Is it uh, to assimilate Western values, to decide how they, they integrate Western values, to challenge them, or, or to say, well, look, some are good and some are bad? I think actually the challenge is uh, more for the Western firms who are making the acquisition of the Japanese firms the extent to which uh, they uh, change the, the, the existing Japanese practices. Uh, in my case, I certainly went into this new company uh, that we had taken over, uh, fully intending to make cha- changes to the HR system. Um, but these are deeply uh, rooted uh, organizationally and, in my view, are also deeply culturally ingla- ingrained. Um, and um, it's very important to understand... Uh, why those practices uh, are as they are before you set about making those changes. And certainly in the case of the five companies I looked at in the study, uh, the foreign firms took a very, very different approach in each case to making those changes. In some cases, in the case, for example, of Chugai, uh, they left the existing management in place. And the fact that the original Japanese CEO uh, was left in place, and in fact is still there, means that um, you see far uh, less change uh, in practices. That was a deliberate policy of Roche's um, than you see at, say, Shinsei Bank, where the new owners uh, installed a new CEO, but also made a a transformation in the model of the bank from the the old long-term credit bank model into something resembling uh, an investment bank. So so are the employee relations necessarily more complex or or could they in fact be easier because people do sit down and scratch their head and and think about their colleagues and what their colleagues may be thinking rather than taking it for granted? I think they are more complex. Uh, There is no doubt about that. Um, And uh, particularly in the case of um, uh, companies uh, for managers who have no experience uh, in Japan, uh, understanding the starting point for Japanese employees before deciding on what changes to make. This, is, uh, this takes an enormous amount of time and patience. And it's not necessarily uh, the obvious thing to do uh, to come in and make immediate changes in the same way that I certainly tried to do in, in my case. So I think it is. Uh, it's enormously complex. Um, there's a, a, a very long tradition, a very long history as to why these, uh, these uh, practices are as they are, and it's um, very, very difficult uh, for companies to come in and change, make these changes straight away and have those accepted by employees. There's certainly an enormous amount of resistance. Uh, We have the example in Britain, of course, of the car industry, where um, the Western workers took on Japanese values by doing exercises in the the morning. We have these little apocryphal stories that that crop up. Are there any the other way round? I'm not quite sure what would happen in Japan, people sitting down and eating a bacon butty in the morning. Uh, no, I, don't, I didn't observe any bacon butty eating uh, at any time of day in, in Japan. Uh, but um, one of the things which, um, and I don't think that, that, uh, that Western organizations have 
these same ritualized uh, daily events in the same way that the Japanese do. But, in, for example, one of the uh, changes that we made um, was the seating plan in the office. We thought that uh, the, the Japanese seating plan, where everyone is crammed pretty close together in the office, and where you can see the hierarchy very clearly in the place where people sit. So you've got the general manager by the window, and in front of him is the manager. And, um, and as you get closer to the wall, you have uh, uh, um, people of lesser hierarchy with the office lady sitting right at the end who makes the tea. And we'd, we thought that was undemocratic, and also uh, there was a lack of privacy for the employees. So we set about changing that. Um, and of course that was, uh, and put everyone in cubicles, which is the sort of the Western way uh, of, put, you know, it's the Dilbert uh, way of, uh, of operating. And whilst the employees greatly appreciated the uh, increased level of privacy, the unintended consequence of that was that actually um, uh, there was a, a sharp decrease, as far as I could see, in the level of cohesiveness and communication. Um, and uh, we, so we made these changes without necessarily understanding uh, why uh, the, the office layout was, uh, uh, there, was like it was in the first place. And it had some unintended consequences, um, which we hadn't predicted. So do we know what makes a successful acquisition and merger and why, I mean, are all um, sort of uh, Western takeovers of Japanese companies successful or, or, or are there, there are actually some common practices that would nurture success? Well, in the, certainly in the cases that I looked at um, of the five companies, two are no longer uh, in Japan, two, uh, of the un two of the companies sold their businesses in Japan and have retreated, uh, unfortunately. Of the three survivors, um, I would say that certainly Nissan um, and Chugai uh, have so far uh, been successful. Um, I don't think it's easy to draw any parallels between um, the uh, survivors. Um, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, a lot has depended on the role that Japanese subsidiary is intended to play in the new uh, global uh, operation. Um, and I, I think I concluded that there's probably no one best way uh, to acquire and integrate a Japanese company. But if there were um, features in common, I would say that certainly in the case, well, in all three cases, including Shinsei, there is a considerable degree of autonomy between uh, the Japanese operation and its parent. The relationship between the parent and the uh, Japanese subsidiary is characterized by a high level of trust between the management uh, at head office and management uh, in Japan. Um, and also I would say that there is a, an openness in the relationship, a, a willingness to learn from the overseas parent uh, uh, from the Japanese uh, subsidiary. And, you know, uh, the, the, the senior management of Roche acknowledges um, the uh, excellent pipeline of new products that uh, Chugai is producing and acknowledges the potentially enormous contribution that these new products will make to the new Roche uh, global organization. And in the case of Renault, uh, when a few years ago they were launching the Me Megan II uh, in Paris, uh, they... Uh, imported about 100 Japanese engineers to help uh, Renault in France uh, with the finishing process. 
Um, and I think that was an acknowledgement of the, uh, you know, the great skills of the Nissan engineers. And I think this sort of thing is, is very important for the morale uh, of, of, the, of the Japanese subsidiaries. So those are the kinds of um, similarities which I would like to draw between the successful uh, companies. So, 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 you know, you, you can, if someone reads your book, they will be able to say, have eureka moments? Well, you know, if I follow this protest and procedure, I'm likely to be more successful than if I do something else. It's very much about studying the business environment you're going into, studying the culture and, and respecting both. Exactly. Um, I don't think there's any elixir of success. Um, I, I think the, the, uh, there are uh, uh, sufficient differences uh, in these cases um, to, to make it difficult to draw any one conclusion. But the respect of culture, um, understanding uh, the starting point for the Japanese employees uh, before deciding on your destination, these are the kinds of issues which uh, foreign management need to consider very seriously uh, before making uh, an acquisition and, and making it work. Dr. George Olcott, I do hope your book, Conflict and Change, Foreign Ownership and the Japanese Firm, is a great success. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Judge Business School podcast series today. I've enjoyed it very much. It was a pleasure.